Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is Nigel Wilson, the chief executive of the financial services giant Legal & General, a business with over £1 trillion under management. It's a financial firepower base that puts this leader on the front foot in debates about the future. His call-out is that inclusive capitalism is an investment superhighway that can benefit shareholders and society alike. The realisation of business as a force for good. And earlier this year, his message was that we can build back confidence, but this will require deeds, not words. History will judge us very unkindly if we don't take this opportunity to invest, he said. But to do that, we need to stop talking about it and get on with the stuff we can do, which feels like a very good place to start this interview, Nigel. Welcome to Changemakers. Um, let's get on to the stuff in a minute that we can do. But I loved, we were just talking just uh, off show just a second ago about some advice your, your nan gave you. T tell us about that. No, she always said to me that be kind, be optimistic and be forgiving. And being forgiving is the hardest of the three to, three to do. And it, what, it's what stops a lot of us getting together and working together in a very collaborative way to solve these big societal issues because people have personal vendettas, personal dislikes. And often when I have meetings, I say, bang, let's get the moans and groans and all the stuff that's stopping us getting stuff done out of the way and then we can stop blaming each other for historical things that didn't go the way we wanted them to and actually look forward in a constructive and positive constructive and collaborative way and uh it, it served me well all my my life it's great i mean I, I was i was just thinking about it when you said it as if you were looking at a to-do list of the challenges that the world needs to overcome ch uh, kindness optimism and forgiveness seem to be pretty a pretty good trio i mean this is not you know optimism doesn't necessarily seem to be the best look right now i think something you you might identify with yeah you know my nana was somebody who brought up six boys on her own two of whom died and she had two jobs most of her working life to make ends meet and it was sort of that these people you know you know had kindness they were optimistic and they, they had you know they were forgiving you know that 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 generation and we've got to remember is, is that the basis i mean you know you, you've gone on the record of talking about such a thing as inclusive capitalism this idea about what we're playing for i mean have we got your nan to thank for that <laughs> got part of your nan but for several other people you know I, I, I had amazing teachers when i went to junior school and we, we'd still take our teachers out so my, my friends at, for, at school and thank them for what they did for us was we were the generation that got social mobility and we got on. And at my last uh, function, a, a, a lady came up and was congratulating me and talking about me and asked me to guess who, who she was. And I, I couldn't. And she said, I was, I'm your junior school teacher. I'm so proud it was. I heard this event was coming or going on. And so I, I self-invited myself to come along and talk to you. And how did you feel about that? What was it like? It, felt, it was very emotional, actually, because... The, the, you know, they were so motivational to me that, you know, teachers at my junior school and my, my, my grammar school. And I still thank them every day because I wouldn't be where I was without some great mentors and coaches uh, who who did really kind things to, to me at a very critical moments in their life where I was probably not capable of making the decisions, but they gave me a framework and coaching and a route map to, to get there and rather like my nan when I was a young boy uh, to people as, I, as I've grown up but you you have to create those things by getting 
involved and putting yourself it's not good just clapping in the stand you've got to get out on the pitch and play well i was going to say because it strikes me you know that that pride could be quite easily about here's someone that has risen up become chief executive of a hugely significant global company but it strikes me that that's not enough. You've you've wanted to do something with it. I mean, it strikes me that you know that, that legal in general under your tenure has become this activist investor. Whether it comes to leveling up, whether it comes to diversity, whether it comes to gender, whether it comes to the generations. I mean, these are big issues on your to do item. Tell us why. Well, the, to, I'm doing them. I, I think we are as a firm doing all of these things because they're the right things to do. In, in a very simple way, and I look at the world, you know, through my very optimistic uh, set of uh, set of eyes, which is the world's awash with liabilities, pension liabilities, climate change liabilities, insurance liabilities, and we don't have enough assets to back them. So if we can create assets that back them, rather than gilts or, or some very low yielding asset, which has a 10, 20, 30, 40 year duration, we can really make really good things happen. And there's billions and billions and billions, in fact, trillions of these liabilities lying around. And these, all these societal problems, whether it's in you know, Newcastle or Sheffield or Leeds or Manchester, every day, every week, there's just big issues which are not being resolved. And they need the ap- application of, of some kindness, and, uh, but also a huge amount of long-term patient capital, both on the physical side and digital side, creating infrastructure, but also on the on the the startup side, you know, actually getting companies to be more entrepreneurial, giving them access to capital, and using defined contribution pension schemes, which you typically are investing if you're a young person who's 25, 30 today for the next 30 or 40 years. So you need some risk capital in there. You need to be having a stake in the future. You know, helping to finance your friends, set up set up businesses, but pooling all of that together and this can really make a difference to everyone's life. And, and I suppose when when people look at legal in general and they look at you as, as the CEO, is that there is a debate about business doing good things, being motivated by making positive change, the purpose-led you know, future, if you will. And the bet on the table is that legal in general has put down its capital to follow that idea. Some people you know, this is fantastic. Other people see this as a bit of a fool's errand. You know, you know, you've got your critics in the city and others that say, look, you should just focus on the return, not the social change. But other people say that's not acceptable in, in an era that's changing so fast. Just just tell us a little bit more about your bet on the table with the work you're doing. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. We're on a journey to communicate that actually inclusive capitalism is better than exclusive capitalism. You know, I think most people would agree that that's the, the better outcome to strive to, towards. And the opportunity set for us, because of having this contrarian view, is huge. But if you look at our results, you know, for 10 years now, we've had double digit growth in earnings per share and dividends per share and a 20% ROE. It's, you know, it's there or thereabouts of best in class in the world in terms of, of the financial achievements. But I think part of that's driven by, we've created this culture within the firm where people want to do the right thing for the right reasons, deliver the right outcome. But society trusts us. Yes, we'll make errors, but they're accidental errors. They're not deliberate t- types of errors. We may get, you know, get some customer thing wrong or we may not build someone's house exactly how they want, want it to be. 
But in general, we're trying to do the right, the right thing all of the time on massive industrial scale. So we're not doing a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, our, our program, even if, with Oxford's, four billion. The Manchester program is three billion. They're, they are big bets that actually these great towns and cities of the UK will re-emerge as global powerhouses. I mean, and it's interesting because I always think, you know, we were just talking, you know, you grew up in New, in, in the northeast of Newcastle, I grew up in Sheffield. And of course, these were powerhouse brands in their own right. I mean, you know, I often think about, you know, we think about Apple, Microsoft as the power brands of, of today, but these have had their moments where they have been their Apple of their of their Victorian era and so on. I guess you're you're seeking to regenerate and, and recreate on that basis. Yes. No, and I think that's an absolutely totally relevant point is that, you know, these were the global industrial powerhouses. We now live in a technological age with probably, you know, the two most advanced cities. One, one is Shenzhen, a fishing village that none of us had heard of, that you're just outside of Hong Kong, which is just an amazing transformation of, and Seattle, which you know has got an, an, an amazing array of, of companies. Why can't Newcastle and Sunderland, Sheffield, really strive for a much bigger ambition? Because they, you know they've got loads of universities there, great set of talent, got lots of creative talent there. We were both been nostalgic about the great music that came out of these uh, cities. They've got Premier League football teams now. They've got... Just. <laughs> we were there last year, though. It all comes good in the end. If you read the last chapter... You're right. The, the ingredients are there. You know, when you go back to the history of these places, there were just people who really you know, wanted, to, wanted to collaborate, wanted to make a difference. And, that, and that's what, you know, Seattle's has and Shenzhen has. But it is this, it is, it is this positive constructive collaboration which sits at the heart of what, mm. what we're doing and you see you've touched on something that i think is really interesting about your view of the world you know which is being ambitious because i mean i've been into your office i've seen the regeneration projects that are close to hand i mean some people might expect a financial services leader to want to pull out you know performance charts for pension funds and the likes but actually what motivates your inbox i guess is the change that you're you're making on that regeneration side but you're also um you know using that capital to institute other types of change from just most recently on on the issue of of diversity of FTSE 100 company boards um through to tackling intergenerational unfairness um and delivering um 50 50 by 2020 in terms of gender diversity i mean that surely must be um a, you know challenging quite a lot of vested interest when you when you do that i mean do, do you get a sense that you're pushing at an open door or do you think there's a very hard battle ahead no i don't think there's a hard battle ahead we, we had a wonderful moment we were talking about diversity and inclusion in our firm and we were we addressed the 50 50 by 2020 uh, unbelievably well and you know pretty much 50 percent of all of our senior positions now are filled by women and we were addressing really the, the black and asian community work worked with us and it was uh, a long conversation and uh, one of the, the the one of my colleagues stepped up and answered asked the question you know are you really going to be promoting on merit or do you think then actually you'll just be giving jobs because people are, uh you know are black or asian and i said we've done 50 50 by 2020 and you know to, to my left is two of the more senior women in the in in our organization both of whom are highly intelligent do you think they got their jobs by merit or just because they're women 
please discuss. And when people see it, they, they believe it. And therefore, when you get great role models and examples coming through the organization, and it's the same for everything else, is, you know, I know when we started off regenerating Salford a number of year, years ago, uh, that I had to take the whole board up to see it. And then when they saw it, they were saying, wow, this is just absolutely amazing. We need to be, be doing more of this. Why aren't you doing more of it, Nigel? Why can't we do more more change and make it happen quicker? And that was a wonderful encouragement. And I suppose, the, the, I mean, the, the, the point I was getting at, I guess, is that it's, you know, you've got the metaphorical four walls of legal in general, but you've also got a world right outside. I mean, you, you know, you're based in the heart of the city of London where there are a lot of vested interest that you know frankly would like to possibly find an easier way to earn a living than, than the way you're suggesting um and i i suppose you know we made you our our change maker of the year last year at the u.s embassy and i i in the research i i we found a quote from um, sam walton who was the founder of walmart and he said that high expectations are the key to absolutely everything i mean do you think that do you relate to that Yes. Yeah. I mean, I totally relate to that. Um, and, you know, I've always set incredibly high expectations for myself, but I have a private moment of celebration when I, when I achieve them. And I, you know, try my hardest at pretty much everything I, I believe is worth trying hard for. There's lots of things I do for fun and, and whatever, but uh, I, I think setting oneself up to, to succeed and not catastrophizing things. I mean, if things go wrong, you learn more from failures than you do from success. You know, celebrate your success, but when you fail, figure out what went wrong and what you could have done different and learn and learn, really learn from your, your mistakes. And I've, you know, I, I thought I could be a, a, a great academic. And then I talked with somebody and I realized at MIT, and I realized very quickly, one of us was going to get the Nobel Prize for economics and one of us wasn't. So I had to find something else to do, which was whatever. But it was a, you know, a self-awareness. I'd set high expectations. I got to MIT. I realized I was never going to be a world-class uh, ac academic. And I made or uh, was part of a team that made lots of mistakes in different parts of my life early on. And those are the ones that really, really uh, I lived with. But they... Allowed me to put things right and have the confidence I was going on the right journey when I was all, a bit older. But it, but it's interesting because I mean the academia um, part I was going to come to, but while we're touching on it, I will talk about it now because you are, I guess, identified and and to some to some degree objectified by your role as a chief executive of a large quoted company. But there is a real passion for. Um, academia. You, you did a, a PhD at MIT. Another guest that I had on the show was was General David Petraeus, um, who was similarly driven by uh, an academic interest. The question I asked was that: Did the world miss out a kind of a, a Professor Petraeus? I mean, have we missed Professor Wilson, if you like, in terms of the study of ideas and the, uh, I guess, the pursuit of truth? No, I, I mean, the truth is an interesting thing is that, you know, I, I remember being interviewed by Isaiah Berlin and him asking me whether whether I seemed like a, a young man who was searching for the truth for the common good. And then I realized that that's what I'd been trying to do. But I, it was brilliantly put together by a brilliant mind. And that helped open open doors for me. But I, 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 I have an intellectual curiosity in solving problems and the I've been lucky that I can solve problems at a huge societal level 
rather than a, an academic level. As you know, we gifted 20 million pounds to Edinburgh University to do research on social care, to try and make sure that people don't live in one postal code which has a life expectancy of 58 and one five miles away which is 85. That's a terrible societal outcome. And you know, it's one that goes against our rec the economics of our business, but it's the right societal outcome. And we, we, we gifted five million pounds to Newcastle University to, to come up with you know, the care home of the, of the future because these are re real societal issues that need, that need solving. How does that inquiring mind play out from behind a chief executive's desk? I mean, you've been there since 2012. I mean, how does it, how does it sort of help and hinder the role in terms of your personality, do you think? Oh, no, I, I have a privileged role, a really, really privileged role, which gives me uh, access to all sorts of things. I sit on the life sciences expert panel. I've got a grade B in biology, and I think I was lucky to get that, and that's my only academic <laughs> qualification as far as I can see. But I, but sure, it comes into very good use, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, but I get to listen to all the scientists and talk to them about key issues and discuss stuff. And, you know, they pass on interesting things for me to read and share their wisdom with me. And I, I'm very lucky to get to get on that. This, the Social Care Committee, Intergenerational. I've either chaired, I've been, you know, I'm currently chair of the Innovation on Climate Change Finance for the Bank, Bank of England. And so I get, you know, I, I absorb things very, very quickly. And very quickly and that's just lucky but but those are strong values also things that you find interest things that motivate you but they are also things i guess that challenge because you know there was a times article that that described you as a, as a marmite figure right you know that people either people either get it and i read a shareholder saying we would never say a chief executive could stay for as long as they want but in nigel wilson case we're not far off that <laughs> through to other sorts of people that say well he's it's really opinionated and difficult. I mean, and, and so in terms of the, I guess the saying that you rarely are as others see you, how, how do you see yourself? No, I, I think that's always, it's always been the way in my life is that so I, I have lots of people who like me and some people who don't like me. And, uh, you know, it's, and I, I took that as I can't be likable to everybody. And it, 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 I was going to say, does it bother you? I mean, a lot of people get very upset. No, it doesn't to make, you know, hard decisions. And the hard thing about hard decisions is they're hard. And not everybody's going to like all the decisions that I make. But I, I do no slow no's so that people don't hang around, you know, you know, wasting their time. I, you know, respond very positively to things that are good ideas and give my whole heart and support to them. It doesn't, you know, if this goes wrong, I'll blame you type of approach. And that, you know, that culture of making really good things happen, I think, makes people really excited to work for legal in general. You know, outside, I, I, you know, people will feel a bit worried about, you know, this inclusive capitalist idea that, you know, we should have an equal and, fair, you know, more equal, more fair society somehow. And that somehow if some group gets more, other groups get less. That's not the way I see the world. I see the world as we can lift everybody up. And the rising tide that is legal in general will lift all boats. I mean, I think that was a very Reagan-esque comment that the rising tide captures all boats. But I mean, in the States, actually sticking with it for a moment, there are a group of companies that are called the, the Firms of Endearment, um, which uh, we might remember is a good pun on the old Deborah Winger movie. But the Firms of Endearment are the businesses like Salesforce and others that really do put their social purpose at the heart of their 
um, of their business model. And to some degree, that, that puts a crosshair on them as well in terms of people wanting to show, well, that just, you know, that, that, that kindness is actually a form of weakness. It doesn't lead to enhanced performance. Do you, do you get the sense that legal in general is singled out for a different type of treatment because of its social positioning? Well, I, I hope we're not, but, it was, you know, there are people who not necessarily as interested in us succeeding as other, as others, as I think we deserve. Um, and, it, and it does take a long time because we do, and I view it as a, as a very long project that, uh, that we will become this enormous company, which is seen to be doing economically and socially useful things and delivering, but still delivering great value for shareholders. You know, we, you know, TSR over the last t- you know, 10 years is well over 400%, which is, you know, compared to getting half a percent on your money by gilts call me old-fashioned but i think that's a very good return so you've got to deliver the performance as well as the purpose i have to deliver the performance and our company we should not be embarrassed that we're a very profitable large large company uh, but we're we're actually doing the you know good things at the same time and i think people have got to wake up in the morning i wake up i jump out of bed i'm enthusiastic about what i'm going to do uh, that that particular day, except uh, it, this this interview included on that list, you know, because I, I see them as opportunities, but for getting the message across that you can make a difference, you can make really good things happen. So I want to get into the positive disposition because I think that is right at the heart of you. From the very first day I met you, I felt this is somebody that is like you know, there's almost like a reactor inside of you know optimism, um, and I think there's a formula. And and, and actually, I was writing it down. Um, in preparation for this interview, that I think there's something about being a dad. There's something about the Northeast. There's something about that competitive spirit. You're a great runner. Um, there are certain heroes in your in your life, like um, Nye Bevin um, and uh, William Beveridge and others that were great social reformers. Um, and there is the academic side. I mean, is that is that the formula? Would you say in terms of what creates that that optimism engine? Yeah, I would agree with that. I would totally agree with that. And uh, actually, is that uh, it's all these bits. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got five beautiful daughters, and I, many people will have across leading general when when they want something and something to do with family. I always write, family comes first. Please just go ahead and do it, and mm-hmm. don't be apologetic because you know too many people don't make the right decisions and then they regret them later in life around their their family and and friends. You know. The Northeast is still my spiritual uh, home. You know, I, I would love it to be doing better. And I think, you know, we, we, we can all make, make a contribution toward, towards that. You know, I think that there are people who really you know, have influenced me. I mean, at a, at a macro scale, you know, Bevan and Beveridge would be very high on that list. But lots of other mentors and coaches, you know, the, Dennis Stevenson, somebody who springs to mind, several of McKinsey partners, academics at MIT, my school teachers, some of my uh, soccer coaches and whatever. So I, I did it one time unrealistically. I think I'd be wearing that number one, number nine shirt with a black and white <laughs> strip one. If you'd picked your year, Nigel, you could have probably done it. <laughs> <laughs> Around there. But I, I respect academics because, you know, they, they're the unsung heroes who, who create things that really make, make a difference. And we're lucky in this country. We've got tons of great universities with you know amazingly energetic students and somehow we haven't captured that in you know getting these people to make to make the best of their their lives and and if you to think why because you know i mean a lot of a lot of leaders 
might not necessarily pick the same set of influences. I mean, do, do you think that we that we hold academic leaders in the right esteem? Do you think we have got enough connection between the whole of the UK? I mean, I'm just wondering what's what what stops it happening. No, I think that interconnectedness and that mutual respect and getting groups together uh, and some of the universities, the vice chancellors of those universities who I've spent you know, the last 10 years discussing. And at one point we used to discuss how can we help? And they'd said, just give us some money towards paying for graduates or whatever. But now we have much more constructive discussions about what what role we can play in working, you know, financing startups, you know, regenerating the, the, the city, uh, you know, bringing jobs, building houses, um, investing in you know, scale-up businesses and taking, you know, 30, 40% equity stakes in them and and working closely with the, with the academics and making them, you know, more commercially minded. There's nothing wrong with commercial academics. It's not an oxymoron. And, and I suppose also the importance of keeping grounded. I mean, you, you've taken your girls up to, to see where you lived in County Durham. Tell us a little bit about the connectivity about where you've come from and where you've gone since. Yeah, no, I think the, you know, I did used to drive all my children to um, have a look where I grew up, you know, the house I grew up and the houses that I, that I grew up. And it's very different life from the life that they've, they've, uh, they've, they've enjoyed. Mm. What, um, do, what do they say to you about it? What, what's, the, what's the chat? I was a surprise that actually it was how I described it. You know, it's a, you know well, dad's, not, dad's not exaggerating. <laughs> so exaggerating about, about it, but actually there was a wonderful community and community spirit. And I think one of the things we've got out of, partly out of the pandemic, is the re-emergence of community spirit. And we've got to capture that, the volunteering, the doing societal goods. And we've seen great role models emerge around that. We've become to appreciate some of the workers in the UK for the huge contribution they make to the lives of others, and often invisible contribution of them. And there are societal issues that we, we sort of knew existed, but we haven't really tackled be- before. You know, there's a million people still on the housing waiting list. How can that be true in 2020? So does that mean, in your view, that you know positivity and optimism might might come back as a as an as an act? You know, you, if you wait long enough, every fashion comes back. But I mean, I suppose I mean, when you when you look at it in terms of COVID you know, getting ready for an uncertain future post-Brexit. There's lots of things that people would say, look, I'm listening I'm listening to this guy. He's great. He's achieved a lot. But at the end of the day, let's look at this to-do list. I mean, this is a, this is a heck of a period ahead. I mean, how, how does that positivity and optimism sustain that future and get over those hurdles? No, we will get over these, these, these hurdles, you know, and, you know, society's done this for, you know, several hundred years now. Science is the most exciting it's ever been. We now realize technology is simple. Coding today is the easiest it's ever been. Even you and I could be coding later this afternoon if we had a, you know, because it's so simple. When I did it at MIT, it was really, really hard. And so technology is simple, very easy to use, and the coding's very, very, very easy. I mean, the universities are brimming with, you know, talent and young people who want to change, who are desperate to change, who want to see the world in a, you know, really make a positive difference. Climate change is the single biggest investment opportunity anywhere in the world. Energy is clean, green, and cheap. So actually doing it delivers better societal outcomes than not doing it, because actually economically it makes sense now as well. 
I mean, I, I, I have to say, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, when, when you when you think about just how much has been achieved in such a short period of time, even in a year like 2020, I mean, it really does make you think about how much ingenuity, how much teamwork has been going on. Um, Nigel, unfortunately, that that's all we have time for uh, on this on this episode. I always think the sign of a of a really good episode is goodness. I wish I had more time. Unfortunately, I don't. Thank you to my guest Nigel Wilson and for his story of standing by your values, setting your standards, and throwing yourself into achieving them. And I think that's a recipe for change makers that aspire to make the difference all over the world. And I guess it's why Nigel has been recognized as someone who puts a premium on getting things done. And we are indeed done for this episode. So join me next time for the change makers.